Welcome to A Better Story Podcast, and let me start by saying thank you for all of you who shared last week's episode, who celebrated, who donated to refugees. Thank you so much. And now, let me offer a confession. I did my math wrong. Last week was not the one-year anniversary of the podcast. This week is the one-year anniversary of the podcast. I promise that wasn't intentional. I am just horrible at counting and looking at calendars. So hold your mistakes loosely, people. It happens. But thank you for celebrating an entire year. Let's consider the last week a week-long celebration leading up to the actual one-year anniversary of the podcast. A big congrats to Mattia Norman, who won our books from some of our favorite guests over the past year. And thank you for all of you who have donated to refugees to keep refugees housed in the Seattle area. Keep it up. You can keep donating throughout the year. And now that it's actually the anniversary of the podcast, you can also feel free to go uh, drop a rating on iTunes if you want to. Those are always super helpful. So here's to another year of a better story. Today, let's talk about relationships. A couple weeks ago, over Easter weekend, I had the privilege of officiating a wedding. One of the things I really enjoy about doing weddings are the chance to reflect on relationships, my own relationship, the relationships around me, to remember how and why they're meaningful. And let me just tell you up front, I'm a big fan of long-term relationships, even though they're not always possible. But as much as I love thinking about and celebrating relationships, there's also this reality that the ideals that we have set up, especially in American and even Christian cultures, those ideals of relationships are failing us. We're given these narratives and expectations for relationships that don't actually align with reality. It's like we're going for the the Jerry Maguire relationships, the sort of you complete me sort of thing. We may have this idea that we need some sort of soulmate to achieve our happiness, to find happiness. When we think about relationships, we're often looking for that one relationship that will sweep us off our feet and let us live happily ever after, this sort of Disney version of relationships. There's nothing particularly spiritual or Christian about any of those concepts, but for some reason, at least in the U.S., we take those concepts and then we tack God onto the end as well, just to add a little extra weight as if those concepts weren't weighty enough. And we'll say things like, God has one right person for us. And what this does is we lump all of our expectations, all of our hope in life on one person and one relationship, and then we wonder why they fail under the weight of that. We have this tendency to glorify romantic relationships in such a way that they create this tremendous anxiety to find the correct one and to make it work in the way that we imagined it would. Or it creates shame when those relationships fail and don't live up to our expectations, or they create isolation for anyone who doesn't have that sort of relationship. This was true for Kaylin and I in our relationship leading up to our wedding. We got married super young, straight out of college. It worked out incredibly well, but I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. Results are not guaranteed. But the summer before our senior year, we had this pretty good idea that we were going to get engaged and get married. But in both of us at separate times, this anxiety started to well up because we had been given this narrative that marriage is for life, you're locked in, God has one person for you, so get it right. And as 22-year-olds whose brains weren't even fully formed yet, the weight of that anxiety was incredible. And so it started with me not knowing if I was ready to take that jump, and then it moved to Kaylin wondering if I was the exact right person for her, if this was exactly God's plan. 
And I'd like to tell you that we woke up one day and written in the sky, there was just this divine yes. That didn't happen. We made the leap and it worked out beautifully, imperfectly, not a fairy tale, but wonderfully. And so what I want to talk about today is a realistic, but I also think a sacred way for us to think about relationships and not just romantic relationships. We'll talk mostly about that, but other relationships as well. So I want us to look at an old group of sayings that may help us have more realistic yet sacred relationships. And it's actually a passage that was read at the wedding that I officiated. It's out of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, let me give you this caveat first. There's a lot about relationships that we should not learn from old stories, especially the stories of scripture. There's sexism, there's violence, there's double standards, there's power dynamics, there's a limited scope about who could actually enjoy that marriage. If we actually take a look at what quote-unquote biblical marriage is, it's probably not worth emulating because the Bible is full of complex and flawed relationships. And yet, in the midst of that, there are parts of the scriptures and stories in scripture and sayings in scripture that tap into something real and sacred and give us an image for what relationships could look like. They put words to an experience. And so these sayings are out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I don't know if you've ever read Ecclesiastes. It gets overlooked all the time. The lectionary, which a lot of churches use to talk about the Bible, doesn't even include Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is real shit. It is this mix of sadness and wisdom and joy and angst all thrown together. It's this unidentified author looking for meaning, asking the question, what is not pointless in life? How do we enjoy life? How do we make meaning in the midst of our anxieties of what it means to exist? So it's a real book. It's grounded. It's down to earth. One commentator said, it's not a book about God. It's a book about ideas, as if the two could be separated, but you get the picture. It was probably written at a point in Israel's history where they'd seen enough that they were done making these big, unrealistic claims about God. It was after they had been taken captive and then eventually allowed to return to their home, but they were still under the weight of empire. They were rebuilding their life from these crumbled pieces. And it's really hard to make unrealistic, romantic claims in those moments. But out of that experience emerges something real. And so this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says about relationships. She or he says, Next, I saw under the sun something else that was pointless. There's that angst for you. There are people who are utterly alone with no companions, not even a child or a sibling. Yet they work hard without end, never satisfied with their wealth. So for whom am I working so hard and depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is pointless and a terrible obsession. But two are better than one because they have a good return for their hard work. If either one should fall, one can pick up the other. But how miserable are those who fall and don't have a companion to help them up? Also, if two lie down together, they can stay warm, but how can anyone stay warm by themselves? Also, one can be overpowered, but two together can put up resistance. A three-ply cord doesn't easily snap. This passage gets read at weddings a fair amount, but it's actually really utilitarian and pragmatic. It's not an idealized look at relationships at all. And it's not even just about romantic relationships. It says nothing about romance or even marriage. It's about any of our relationships. And it takes this really pragmatic view that just says companionship is really 
really helpful. Did you catch all that? It's almost humorous. The writer is like, oh yeah, if you have someone else, uh, you'll get more work done. And if you ever need medical attention, it's really great to have someone there. And if you get cold, snuggling, mm, good stuff. Bullies, it's good to have a second person there in case there's a bully. It's so pragmatic. Now, this is a little bit of sort of poetry, so there's probably some exaggeration here, but I think there's still something we can learn from. There's a realism in it that we could benefit from. It's outlook on relationships, maybe a little bit healthier, the roles it takes on. Because what you don't see in this is this weird enmeshed sort of losing yourself in the other person that we often put in the 21st century on romantic relationships. There's a sort of unified separation. Each person is individual and working hard, but doing it together. It's this acknowledgement that life is better with others, but your happiness is still your job. It takes the burden off that other person. Because I don't know if you've ever felt that burden to try to make someone else happy, but it's impossible. The best you have to offer them is yourself, your whole self, your healthiest self, and your love and your support, but their happiness is on them. Their meaning is on them. You're just there to walk with them through that. Now, if this is too pragmatic for you, and you're like, oh God, this is depressing. There is this weird magic trick at the end of this scripture, if you caught it. In the midst of all of that realism, something appears. The author is talking about two people the entire time. And then at the very end, a third thing pops in. She says two are better than one. If two lie down together, two can put up a resistance. And then all of a sudden, a three-ply cord isn't easily snapped. Where in the world did that third thing come in? What is that? Scholars, pastors, people have guessed about this. Some people would say, oh, it's kids. It's when you have kids, this third thing. It's really great. Some people will get super spiritual and they say, it's God. You just wrap your life around God together. If you're a real hippie or if you're just looking at the context of what was written, you might be like, well, it's a polyamorous relationship. Look, all those things may be true. I have no idea. But I can tell you from my experience what the third thing is that holds the relationship together. And it's what forms over a long period of time when you're with someone. That third thing is the life that you create together. It's almost the relationship itself. You see, what happens over time is as you share experiences, as you share life together, that relationship and that life that you build begins to acquire mass. You begin to put more into it. And then it takes on gravity. It becomes this third thing in the midst of two individual people that has the gravity to keep them together. Because what you've built together, what you've invested in, the shared experiences you have together is beautiful and sacred, and it comes out of something very realistic. And when this third thing is created, this life that you've built together, your relationship, it's one of the only things that has the gravity to actually keep you together, even when you don't actually like the person on some days. Because if it's just up to you liking a person every day for the rest of your life, it's a tall task. But if it's about building something together that pulls you together and keeps you together, that's something beautiful and a little mystical and definitely sacred. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have strong feelings attached. That doesn't mean you don't have romantic feelings. Your initial infatuation, your sexual desire, even your admiration of the other person is really great. It's really good fuel to get that relationship launched, but it's not going to keep it going. 
Chemically, your brain loves that feeling. It's a high, endorphins kick in, it's wonderful. It's one of the best parts of life. But if you're chasing that feeling constantly and trying to recreate it in your relationships, it's like you're chasing a high all the time in the same way that someone who is addicted to a substance would. But that third thing, that third cord, is what is strong enough to tie two people together for a long time. So for all the shitty ways that we idolize relationships, long-lasting relationships can create something really beautiful and sacred. And again, those don't have to be romantic relationships. They can be committing to a community, to a place, to a family, to a friend. Over a long period of time, as you build something together, it takes on this life of its own. Now, this realistic but sacred vision isn't easy. I'm not even sure it actually comes natural. So you may be asking yourself, how do we begin to do something like this? Well, I can't give you a five-step guide, but if we back up in the passage, we'll see something. It has to do with how we actually relate to other people, how we view other people. Just before this passage in Ecclesiastes, the author says something along the lines of, I see how other people work and relate with one another. And so many people are driven out of envy, and it's pointless. It's as if the writer is starting with how to not build a life together, and that's by basing it on envy. It's like the writer is almost contrasting a life of envy versus mutuality with other people. And the problem with envy is that it's obviously selfish. It sees other people around us through the lens of ourself, so that we're either competing or comparing ourselves to and against them. And so if we go into relationships assuming they're all about me, it's going to end in frustration and anxiety. But if we go into the relationship seeking mutuality, something really beautiful can emerge. There's a couple of metaphors that have helped me with this that have been around for a long time, but I just happened to stumble upon them in my own marriage and relationship a few years ago. After a couple of years of being married, I realized that I was viewing Kaylin as a mirror. Here's what I mean. The things that I would say that I admired and liked the most about her were actually just reflections of myself. So if I was naming the top 10 qualities when we first got married that I liked about her, they would actually be qualities that either I wanted or qualities I thought I possessed. It's a selfish way to view a relationship. But what happened over time as that third thing emerged as our life was built together is that I began to see her as a window, that her perspective, her differences, allowed me to see life differently, opened me up to an entire new perspective of life. And so that I began to even admire and appreciate our differences. That's what made the relationship good. Case in point, I am an incredibly passive person. I am a people pleaser to the T. Now I've gotten a little bit better over the course of my life, but generally, I will run from confrontation as much as I can. Kaylin, on the other hand, has no problem with confrontation. If we're at a restaurant and someone messes up my order, my initial reaction is, it's fine, I'll just eat it, it's okay. Kaylin's reaction is, that's ridiculous, you didn't order that, send it back. Now, initially, this, if I'm being honest, drove me crazy about her because it was embarrassing. I was like, please don't put me in these confrontational situations. But over time, her characteristics, her differences from me allowed me to see life a little bit differently. And I began to realize that there are, of course, times where it makes sense to be blunt and honest and confrontational with people in life. But if I was stuck using her as a mirror, then I would have never experienced that. 
I'd be stuck eating food that I didn't actually order. Now here's the last thing that I think Ecclesiastes does for us with relationships. The whole context of the book of Ecclesiastes and of this passage is saying that relationships are in service to something bigger. They're in service to meaning, to joy, to a life worth living. Our relationships should move us towards something, towards wholeness. They aren't an end in and of themselves, but they're an avenue to something real, to something sacred. So whatever your relationships look like, if you're in a romantic relationship, if you're single, if you're just trying to figure it out, I hope your relationships are real. They're realistic. But I also hope you get the chance to experience over time, whether in a romantic relationship or any other relationship, what it looks like to create a third thing together, to experience the gravity of shared experiences of a life built together. And in that experience, something beautiful and sacred. Until next time, peace, friends.